Get away from my microphone, kitty. Fix this in post. <laughs> Fix it in post. Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comic Podcast, Episode 72, the Testosterone Edition. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined by one other nerd, Matt. Hello. Together we take on this week's comics. Each week we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week's books, and then come on back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. It was a hard choice this week. I thought I had my pick all picked out. <laughs> I had my finger on the button, and I changed my mind at the last minute. So, this week... The pick of the week goes to Clean Room number 18. Our companion song is Fire, Water, Burn by the Bloodhound Gang because, well, in this issue, Astrid Mueller's complex catches on fire and she chooses to let it burn and not be concerned about that at all. So I felt like the song kind of fit and had that kind of almost apocalyptic end of the world, we don't give a fuck anymore <laughs> kind of feel to it, which I think fits in with this Clean Room issue. I think she even said, I set the fire. Yes, she did. Which is even more appropriate for that song, because it's like, let's light this thing up. We'll get into it. But she wanted to clear the civilians out of the area. It's definitely efficient. <laughs> so let's take a listen. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water, let the motherfucker burn, burn, motherfucker, burn. So, clean room number 18, A Bridge to Nowhere, from Vertigo Comics, written by Gail Simone, pencils and inks by Walter Giovanni, and colors by Quentin Winter. This one is the end of what they are calling season one for Clean Room. I really hope they come back with a season two. This one does seem to tie up everything in Clean Room that's been happening so far. It's been a really satisfying run to read, and seeing all those threads come together really paid off in this issue for me, which is probably why I chose it for my pick of the week. I love when a plan comes together. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah, van comes crashing through. Oh, that would have been so great. <laughs> <laughs> I love when a villain's plan comes together and you get to see the magnitude of their plan be revealed. That's one reason why I liked the last issue of Secret Empire so much. That's why I enjoyed when uh, Magneto and Emma Frost revealed their master plan in the X-Men versus Inhuman book, which was not very good, but I loved that revelation of plans. <laughs> the book sucked, but the plan was great. The plan was great. The plan took my breath away. And in this one, you get to see both the aliens plan, alien, demon, whatever they are. They still don't really give a really good explanation for what they are. Is there really a difference, though? Not really. Mysterious things from somewhere else that want to eat your face and enjoy tormenting you. Eh, it's pretty much the same thing. So you get to see their plan being revealed, and you get to see Astrid's plan being revealed, and you get to see the chess match come to its bloody, fiery conclusion. It opens up. The aliens have essentially ushered in the apocalypse. Like, the stars have fallen down. There are aliens everywhere. People are turning on each other. There's rioting in the streets. Mass chaos. Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> The building that Astra is in that her cult or church or organization's headquarters is on fire. The police officer who's dating Chloe sees that it's on fire and he's trying to get into the building to try and rescue her and he eventually does get into the building. The police tell him it's on fire. If you go in there it's your funeral but we're not going to stop you. We're too busy trying to actually evacuate all the people that are running out of the building. Which as you mentioned Matt is you find out Astrid's plan. She's the one who set the building on fire to clear everyone out because she knows the aliens, the demon things are coming for her and that there's going to be a final bloody showdown which only you know one of them is going to walk away from and she is trying to save the world you get to see almost a softer side of astrid here but also a very determined and almost ruthless side as well at the same time you do find out yes she is trying to save the world and she's trying to spare as many people as she can while she's doing it but in order to accomplish that goal she will sacrifice people you have a scene where that little baby that's possessed by one of the creatures 
Isn't it like her niece? That's her niece that's been possessed by one of the creatures. And it's like riding around on the shoulder of this cultist that's burned his face and deformed himself to pay homage to them. And the thing alternates between giving him really creepy demonic alien instructions like bring me flesh and carve their faces off, those kind of things, along with things that little kids would say like bring me a sippy cup of apple juice. And when they put those two together, it's very strange. Both creatures inhabiting the same body. So he's kind of riding on the shoulders like you would like give a kid like a piggyback ride kind of and controlling the guy and you find he's going towards the clean room which Astrid has sealed shut and you see Capone is there and goes to fight the guy and this was one of my favorite scenes because there's machetes and kicking and fighting and there's actually a point where you see her reach into the person's mouth and like grab their jaw while she's fighting Just rip it off <laughs> totally badass right so cathartic he's swinging at her with a machete but you don't get to see how the fight ends it cuts to being inside the clean room with Astrid and her inner circle of people and she's explaining the plan to them that she has distracted them by bringing them into the clean room and keeping them busy and while that's happening the crazy guy that's one of Chris's favorites you know, like Captain No Pants the crazy pervert on the ship that they built Mm-hmm. There's the giant cannon. He fires that cannon up at their invisible city, which is like a giant floating bug thing, blows a huge hole in it and kills it, which pisses off the little demon child. Astrid opens up the door to the clean room, and at first they're telling her, we don't know who won that fight. We don't know if Capone won or the little demon won. And she says, essentially, well, if it's Capone, we'll welcome her. And if it's not her, we'll meet death with the same bravery that she had. Right. Which is kind of when they're having that epic fight outside where jaws are getting ripped off and people being slashed with machetes. Everyone else in the room wants to go help them. And this is kind of where you see Astrid being more callous in her sort of general strategy that she has here. She tells them that Capone is expendable. We're not. And Capone knows that and has chosen to stay out there and fight. So you have to let it play out. She is the most powerful piece on the board. And now she's chosen to move in this chess match. So the door opens and Capone is alive and she kind of collapses in the doorway but she's badly hurt. And then when she collapses down, you see the little kid covered in blood standing behind her and she has to climb over the step because she's very tiny. She's a little child. And that's when they start taunting each other. The demon is telling her, I finally found a way into the clean room. And she tells the demon, you're wrong. You didn't find a way into the clean room. I let you into the clean room because this is where we're going to destroy you. Because an exorcism isn't enough to destroy you. We need to actually destroy you. We can't just send your spirit somewhere else. Because exorcism just removes the spirit from the body. Correct. They're doing uh, exoduction, which is, I think it destroys the spirit. The creature tells her the clean room is powerful enough to do that, but they don't know how to use the clean room. And the clean room was created by them and it's under their control. And Astrid tells them, well, you're right. We don't know how to use it, but we have a friend who does. And that's when you see Spark appear, who's the sort of reformed demon that got all of the evil driven out of him in an exorcism and has been helping Astrid. He actually saved Astrid's life and pulled a bunch bullet fragments out of her earlier but she didn't trust the demons and she ended up frying him and almost killing him but here he keeps telling them that he's good spark is a good boy yeah creepy as hell but it turns out he is actually good and he takes control of the clean room and fries the shit out of that little demon the part that i also really liked is when all that's done it's kind of like the aftermath scene and you have chloe reading astrid's book and her book is this really long book that has no punctuation no spacing and it says this book it said that when you read it if you finish it either you're going to find complete enlightenment or be driven insane and she says i'm halfway through and I can't wait to see how my journey ends. I just thought that was a perfect ending to season one of Clean Room. I mean, I'd love to see this as like an HBO show or, yeah. or even AMC. It's that type of show and the way that it ended up. It puts a video in your head. Finally get to the end of the, uh, the season and the person's just sitting there. The whole thing was just narrating the rest of it. And it was like all their story that they were telling you. Yeah, it's done very cinematic. If you could get the budget for the creatures down correct, I think this would make an excellent series, like a, a TV series to, to do. And I, I think HBO I think would be the can. place to do it. Well, Stars has found the budget for American Gods. If they can find the budget for American Gods, then I'm sure HBO could find the budget for this. Yeah, I'm sure HBO can dig up a few nickels to rub together to make a series if they want to. 
Yeah. They seem to have some budget there. I really liked this. The whole run of Clean Room has been really spectacular. I think it took a half a step back when they switched out artists. I think that that has been something the Clean Room never really recovered from. Because compared to John Davis Hunt, Walter Giovanni is pretty good. He's like the B-plus to John Davis Hunt's A-plus work. They're very similar. Very similar. It's like a copy of one of the great masters. It's like it's like going at the height of the game Wildstorm, where like Authority was out and well, it was mostly Authority. And Stormwatch and yeah. Planetary and Authority were all at the top of their game and all that. And they had like the really crazy good clean artists on there to, you know, shortly afterwards when stuff started to go wrong and Authority got into like series three or four and the apocalypse started happening and they stopped caring. But they were still like good people. It's just they weren't quite as good. Yeah. And I think if it had started out with Walter Giovanni, I wouldn't be complaining about the art now and i mean don't interpret this as me really complaining about the art i just you get spoiled i was spoiled it was magic with the two of them together and now it's like vegas cheap casino magic <laughs> it's still kind of cool but it's no showstopper i have been reading the wildstorm though and man you had to have hunt jump over to that because he literally he looks like a wildstorm artist yeah I see what you're saying, but I'm not sad that he had to jump over. He had a good reason to go. Yeah, he didn't move on to something that wasn't good. It's just, he has a way of doing horrific things that other people just (laughs) can't quite match. Like, this guy, he can draw monsters, and they're passable monsters, but they don't terrify me on a deep level like John Davis Hunt's creatures did. They were just disturbing in the way that their body language was not quite human. They were just nightmare creatures. And these are like, that was a bad dream creatures. I mean, this is definitely my pick of the week and I think it deserves it. I really do hope they pick up a season two of Clean Room. I don't know how the sales have been going for it, but it did. It was able to go 18 issues. So please, Vertigo, continue Clean Room. This is classic Vertigo, too. I mean, this book right here, this is what, when you say Vertigo, this is what you're talking about. Creepy, crazy level of this shit. Yeah, this is the book that got me back into reading Vertigo comics. It was very cathartic, too. Yes, it was a very satisfying conclusion to the end of it. Clean Room has been our pick multiple, multiple times. I'm pretty sure every nerd has chosen it as their pick of the week at one point or another. It's been fantastic. Pretty sure I did when it first started out. It's been a good run, and I'm sorry to see it go, to see that book be put back on the shelf, but I'm sure it'll be taken down and opened up again to tell us some other horror that's coming through. So I think in the end, I will give it four and a half sippy cups of apple juice. (laughs) Nice. I will give it four and a half. Spark is a good boy. (laughs) (laughs) so this next one was going to be my pick of the week but i went to bed after having read them all and been thinking about it and when i woke up the book that i was thinking about was clean room that edged it out by a hair but this was close that sounds like a (laughs) (laughs) rom-com i went to bed thinking about the both of you but you were the one i woke up thinking about so i'm gonna go with you and only in a rom-com is that gonna win somebody over (laughs) so otherwise both girls would be like you know what screw you why are we thinking about the other girl so the next book is The Flash number 21 by DC Comics. It's The Button Part 2, written by Joshua Williamson and art by Howard Porter. This is part of the series bringing the Rebirth mystery forward. It's called The Button because of, well, we think, and I'm pretty sure I'm 100% certain, pretty sure you're 100% certain that it's the comedian's pin. Yes. It's the story going down the mystery of that pin, and then you have the added mystery of Eobard Thawne being dead on the floor of the Batcave, and the Batcave just fucked up. And previous to that, as part of the lightning mystery, you've also got Johnny Thunder, who is Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt, which was a JSA thing, because part of what Rebirth is doing is it's merging the post-crisis and the New 52 worlds together, and he's part of the post-crisis and also the pre-crisis. He's a member of the original The Justice Society. He was this kid who basically got this magic word that allowed him to control a lightning bolt, which was really a genie, that he could then do stuff. But he grew old because that was World War fucking two. With the merging of the worlds is saying screw you to that superheroes are only five years old thing. The history of everybody is back. Worlds are kind of slowly merging together. But at the same point in time, you've got the mystery of, okay, who fucked this up in the first place? Because we find that it wasn't the Flash and we've got a murder mystery going on here. It continued along the thread that I've seen in a couple books where you're showing that Barry 
Barry Allen isn't just a dude who runs fast. He's yes. a forensics specialist. And him and Batman really should be buddies. And they show in here that maybe not necessarily buddies because Batman's buddies with few, but they're very good work buddies. Right? They yes. can, they're the only two people who can talk on that level that they like both passionately are obsessed with. There was one point in the book where Bruce starts to, and I hate this because I get this at work when I'm trying to troubleshoot a problem. And somebody's like, did you try this? And I'm like, come on, it's me. <laughs> You really should know better. Of course I did that. Did you try turning off the crime scene and then turning it back on? Yeah, basically. So the Flash is trying to find out who killed Eobard Thawne. What's up with this fucking button? Why is my energy all over Eobard Thawne? All this kind of crazy ass shit. And then Batman's got his ass beat by Eobard Thawne, which is one of the few people who can really beat Batman down like that because, you know, he's a Flash. He can move fast enough to do it. Right. So he leaves Bruce in bed at Wayne Manor and he ends up at the Watchtower in their All of Lost and Found. Oh, I love that scene. I fucking love it. It's so great. Like, this one scene just abolishes five years of history because there's no fucking way all of this is found in five years. And if you look up at the top, you got Beetle's Bug. Yes. Yeah, that's the first thing I know is this Blue Beetle's Bug. You've got the yep. Martian Manhunters, like, original Actual costume. outfit. Yep. You've got some of those robots there. I mean, it's just a little treasure trove of Easter eggs. The H dial. You've got Zatara's hood. You've got Lobo's actual like chain hook from actual Lobo and not Greaser Lobo. There's just so many awesome things. I like. Can I get this as a poster? <laughs> and they had this too in the classic pre-Crisis JLA. They had Hall of Trophies basically. And and as he runs through things, you see like the Star Spangled Kid and Our Man's costumes. So we're like basically saying, hey, the JSA exists, but what's going on? And you end up at the fucking cosmic treadmill, which we haven't seen in four fucking ever. That was so awesome when I found it because it's one of the coolest things in the DCU. It's also one of the cheesiest things in the DCU. Yep. So to see them it kind of embrace it, when I saw it, I was like, oh, no, they didn't. It's just awesome. Flash starts running on the cosmic treadmill, and Batman shows up, like, limping. He's like, you're not leaving without me. We're doing this mystery together. Yeah, Batman's on the case. He's not giving up so easily. Yeah. It'll take more than a few broken ribs and, you know, liters of blood down. Yeah, he clips himself to the cosmic treadmill, and they start running, and they see alternate versions of the Justice League origin story, and they're like, wait, what is all this crazy shit? This isn't right. Yeah. One thing I'm not happy that they're keeping is the identity crisis. They did the identity crisis thing where Zatanna is about to steal memories, which is ironic because that's where Barry is saying, well, he told me they took years from us, and she's about to take memories out of Bruce's head, which I didn't really like identity crisis, but whatever. They show the crisis part where he's fading away into a skeleton, but it was from a different scene, and it's also kind of a call out to Batman versus Superman. And then they run, and they run, and they run, and they go, Poof! and the cosmic treadmill just kind of explodes because they've gone past. I'm guessing maybe the source wall or it's blue. So maybe it's Dr. Manhattan's little fuck up wall. Yeah, or you could be striking them down so they can't get to where they need to go to, too. Yeah. And then they end up apparently in the Flashpoint world because when they get there, you find Thomas Wayne in the I Carry Guns Batman outfit. I like that it takes about three pages for them to realize where they are. That first Batman's like, hmm, this looks like the cave when I first started out, but it's not quite right. Why is there this gun? I never found the gun from when they shot my mother and my father. And then realize that's not the gun that shot your mother and father. That's the gun that shot you. Son. And then that awesome panel where you have the two of them together. The two Batman, it was just freaking neat. I love this. Part of what I love about DC is legacy. It's something I'm hoping to see in Marvel because they've been promising us the whole Generations thing and legacy. They've literally talked about having like a Stone Age Avengers. It's a fun part of DC that DC kind of spat in the face of with the new 52. And it looks like they're bringing it back with Rebirth because they realized, oh wait, that's what people were buying us for. And now we're bringing it, but we're also even not forgetting stupid mistakes like Flashpoint. I liked Flashpoint. Taken by itself, it was a neat story, but it fucked up the DC Universe. I didn't like what it did. They're kind of trying to tie it all together and not throw any babies out with the bathwater. But I really liked the book. I thought it was good. I liked it too. It really felt to me more like a Batman book than a Flash book. Anytime Batman shows up. Anytime Batman shows up, he does kind of dominate wherever he's at. I did appreciate how they were showing you the reasons why they are at least really good work friends, if not actual friends. They both have their love of criminology and forensics, so they can talk shop. But the reason they have that love is the same. Their mother was taken from them in a violent crime that went unsolved. That's the real Martha connection. 
Yeah, seriously. I love there's a scene in the very beginning where you see the Batcave and there's all those little evidence placards that they put down next to like bullets or blood spatters or wherever. And you see Barry walking around it. And it's this great shot of the cave with all its trophies, its dinosaurs and coins and all that with little evidence things around it trying to figure out what happened. I thought that was a really great thing to show you that, like you said, Barry is not just a guy who can run really fast. In the yards and yards, maybe miles of yellow caution tape yes. fucking everywhere. I thought kind of it was caution tape, but I think it was also trying to tie into his lightning lines that go everywhere. Because a lot of times with the do the flash, they'll just draw like a yellow line to show where he went. And I think it was kind of like a tie into that as well. Art on this is pretty good. Some of the faces look a little wonky to me, but it's not too Agreed. bad. It's not bad. It's it's not my cup of tea. I think it's more creative than done perfectly, if that makes sense. The eye of the artist has so many details in it and knows how to frame the shots very well. I'm just not crazy about how they actually draw the things. But it wasn't so bad that it made me put down the book or not love it. I mean, it was almost my pick of the week. So I did really like this thing. You get kind of that sense of scale for the DCU that when the Flash starts traveling through multiverses in time that you get. That is one of the good things about the DC universe. The thing about the Flash and part of his importance is the DC universe is the Flash's universe. He's the constant. He's the constant, but he's also the one who opens it up. He's the guy who originally did the Cosmic Treadmill. He met the original Flash, Jay Garrick, and that's what created the multiverse in the first place. The multiverse and all the different alternate universes for the DCU, all that, it all comes back to the Flash. And he's also not so much in the comics, but in the DC animated universe, they made a special point that Wally is the heart of the Justice League. Well, Barry's not necessarily the heart because he's more of a thinking person. He's the core of the universe, basically. The speed force and everything else, it ties him into all of reality and he is able to traverse all of reality not only can they move through those realities they tend to remember them as well which is pretty cool for them i also liked that he was talking about a vision that he kept having of the helmet of jay's mercury helmet that was pretty cool too because he's basically having a wally moment like when wally first bursts through and starts off rebirth he's trying to bring back all these memories of like hey remember this remember these things and like something that barry really should know is jay i mean jay is a very important piece to barry so he's kind of also going to be the key to bringing the justice society back i like how they're setting that up like last issue we had saturn girl for the Legion of Superheroes, missing for too long. You've got the JSA, you've got all these things coming back into the DCU, so... It's exciting. I think it was pretty damn good. I think I will give this one four and a quarter. I never found this gun. I will give it four and a half. This is my case too, Barry. Nice. Yeah, good cop, bad cop. <laughs> got good cop and dark mean cop. <laughs> Think of dark mean characters. I'm taking us over to the Marvel Universe for Weapon X number two from Marvel Comics. It's written by Greg Pak, pencils by Greg Land, and Ibram Robertson. Inks by Jay Leister and Ibram Robertson, and colors by Frank D'Armada. Weapon X is, there's an organization that's trying to round up all of the people that are part of the Weapon X program. And this issue shows you Warpath is the main focus of this particular story. So it opens up with him talking about how he's one of the most powerful mutants on Earth, and there's lots of places he could be. He could be with the X-Men, he could be doing lots of stuff, but he just needs to go somewhere and think about things and relax and kind of meditate on what's going on and get in touch with his roots and all of that. And there's this place that his father used to take him to think because it was quiet when his father was dying of cancer. So he's sitting on a mountain meadow relaxing and taking everything in and he sees these wild mustangs running by and he's watching them and they're being chased by this helicopter which is it's illegal to chase animals in that way at least it was until recently when they made it legal again Fuckers. (laughs) Warpath is having none of this. So he leaps up on top of the helicopter, rips its blades off, and crashes the helicopter into the ground so the horses aren't being terrorized. And he looks inside, and there's a robot piloting it, not a person, like a drone. And he's like, what the hell is this? And then this is what I thought was really cool, is then the horses turn around, and their flesh starts ripping off, and they have those Terminator-type robots that we were talking about in the first issue of Weapon X that are there, and they start fighting him. And what I really like 
about the Weapon X issue is that when they come after the people, they come after them with things that are designed to not only rip them apart physically, but to attack their spirit as well. They sent a child after Sabretooth. They sent innocent hikers after Wolverine. And now they're sending animals after Warpath. He's battling these pretty cool looking robot horses that have these blade hooves that they're attacking him with. And then it kind of cuts back over to Wolverine and Sabretooth fighting the people that Wolverine lured to Sabretooth. Wolverine is making the case that when they got attacked separately, they barely survived. But if they team up together, they should be able to fight the thing. And they don't really have a choice anyway, because they're here now. When they're getting ready to fight, Sabretooth is like, screw you, runt, and runs off into the woods, which I liked because it was a very classic interplay between the two and showing you that Sabretooth is not really out to save anyone but his own ass. Wolverine starts chasing him through the woods and tells him, I can track you. They have our genetics, so they can track us too. They're going to be here any minute now, but I used my scent to lure them off into a box canyon. And that's when Sabretooth's eyes kind of light up and they realize that now they've got the robots where they want them so they can go to fight them. They go to kind of corner them in a box canyon and Sabretooth kind of frenzies and rips out and kills one of them and crushes its skull. And Wolverine wants to investigate it, but Sabretooth has completely destroyed it. And then the other robots turn back. They're not going into the box. They realize it's a trap. You also have kind of an interesting moment where you see the secret group that's preparing the tanks. And it's kind of this office banter back and forth where one of them doesn't really want to work overtime because he has to go pick up his kids. And then the boss comes in and is like, this is a place for dedicated people who will do anything it takes to achieve our goals. You know, are you that person or not? So then they fall into line and they start prepping the tanks. And at first he's saying that it's going to take all night to prep one tank when they bring back Warpath. And he tells them, no, that we're bringing in everyone today. So you have to prepare all the tanks. And that's when you see that they actually do have Warpath that they captured and they have tanks set up for Domino, Wolverine, and Sabretooth that they're out to capture. So I really like this. I think it's high adventure, but the adventure has consequences and stakes and the fights are very personal fights to them that have been tailored to them to crush them. I like a mystery. I like action and adventure. And it's really nice to have an X-Men book that I want to read. So what do you think of it? I liked it a lot. It's not your classic X-Men book, but it's also not your classic Marvel book. It's a good side. And I don't know if it's necessarily Weapon X because Lady Deathstrike wasn't created by Weapon X. She had her father's people use his technology to make her, but it's all kind of intertwined because then her father's technology got stolen by Weapon X. So she is kind of entwined into that, but she wasn't made by it. And Warpath, he's not a Weapon X character, but he was in the X-Force books. He's basically worked with these people and he's one of those, I'll cut a bitch type (laughs) X-Men characters. He doesn't need the big-ass knives, but he still carries them. He's a badass character, too, and this is, like, the perfect place to fit him in. And this kind of story is just kind of like dark people who do dark things, and then there's darker people after them kind of story, which is kind of a good... Who's the guy? Guy Ritchie, I think? He did Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Yes, that's Guy Ritchie. It's kind of like a movie he would make, but in like a comic form. Like desperate people who do bad things, but are good people, or bad people it's who like do the good Dirty things. Dirty Dozen or Inglorious Bastards. That kind yeah, of thing. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I will give it four Wild Mustangs. I will give it four. Oh my god, there's robots coming out of those Mustangs. <laughs> you know, this next one was also a surprise to me. Maybe not as surprising as Killer Robot Horses, but. <laughs> Surprised in a good Surprised way, I hope? in a good way. Okay, good. <laughs> I was like, is he going to like it or is he going to knock me? No, no, this also could have been my pick of the week. Oh, excellent. So the next book is Britannia, We Who Are About to Die, number one, by Valiant Comics, written by Peter Milligan, pencils and inks by Juan Jose Rip. Colors by Frankie Darmata. This was kind of a side diversion. I picked it up because I was like, Valiant? Okay, well, that's interesting. Because Valiant usually has their own little world, but then I was like, I've never heard about this before, and everything that Valiant's been doing lately is all, let's reboot our old stuff. Did you not read the main Britannia storyline? I have not. There's more? Yes, there's a whole series on this world. I figured this was just a boot up, and they were giving backstory that they wanted to talk about, so you knew it was going. Oh, shit. 
<laughs> Let me bring you in. I think it was actually right when you had to step away for a little bit and Rory stepped in, he picked Britannia as one of his first books. It's the story of Nero's reign as the Emperor of Rome, like the Mad Emperor of Rome. And there's the Vestal Virgins who have the flame of Vestia that guards Rome. Like as long as that flame burns, Rome is cool. And if it ever goes out, right. Rome will fall. And they have this book that introduces science and logic and and cause and effect thinking, which is pretty much unheard of at the time, because everything is religion and superstition. So they have this legionnaire that they turn into the world's first detective. So he's kind of like Batman right. and Sherlock Holmes, but a badass Roman centurion. This was basically picturing when I was reading him. He's like Sherlock Holmes in Rome. Pretty much. So yeah, there's a whole series called Britannia that this is a spinoff of. This is like a miniseries for that. So you got something to go back and read because it's awesome. Damn it, I don't need more stuff to go back and read. <laughs> or just follow Fuck. this one through, because this one stands alone, too, because they give you a pretty decent summary of that. Okay, so this starts off with a murder mystery. Somebody is fucking up young nobles in Rome, and I don't know if he's just having weird dreams, like walking dreams, or if the statues are actually coming to life and fucking these or people up. Or maybe they're ancient robots or something. Oh, they could be ancient robots. Oh, so like the doctor's going to show up because that would be so Doctor Who. <laughs> it's going through him trying to solve this murder mystery of these young nobles getting killed. But at the same time, Nero is looking for a reason to fuck up the Vestal Virgins. It's just kind of the interplay of ancient Rome with people who are itching for a fight with the Vestal Virgins. And then the Vestal Virgins who are itching to try to keep everything together. They're kind of like the bosses of the main protagonist. What's his name? Antonio Ataxis? Antonius, I think. Antonius, he's the Sherlock Holmes of Rome, but they trained him, they gave him a, a mind to be more than just another one of these thugs using the Codex book, which is redundant because Codex just means book. <laughs> but I think Codex specifically is a book of codes, but really like the show Rome. I thought it was really yes. well done. It made me kind of think back to that, but this is the dark days of Rome where everything is fucking going to hell. I think Nero is where Rome burns. Yes, Nero fiddles while Rome burns, famously. Yep. He's also incredibly corrupt and insane and incestuous and murderous and all the bad traits of Roman emperors. This series yep. is really like if you took the series Rome from HBO and then maybe took Sherlock or Luther or even True Detective from HBO and kind of mm -hmm. put them in a blender, this is what you would get perfect explanation this it's a murder mystery there's some weird occult shit going on you don't know exactly what you don't know if it's real occult shit or if it's just crazy people you've got possibly the gods and you've got the sort of an apocalypse because it's an apocalypse for rome and then you've got at the very end of the book you've got this woman gladiator whooping ass and you see the women who in rome women could hold power but they didn't directly hold power so you see this like powerful woman fucking cutting a gladiator's head off which isn't accurate but who cares it's still That's cool looking the Vestal Virgins so dangerous to the Emperor is they are some of the only women in Rome who have actual power and authority. They can own property. They are co-equal to the Emperor. The Vestal Virgin High Priestess that's in here, she's the equivalent of the Pope for Rome. She is yep. one of the most powerful people in Rome and a woman to boot. The Vestal Virgins were very powerful in ancient They guard Rome's. the eternal flame of Rome. They're very important, you know? I liked it quite a lot. I now have to go fucking back and read I more. I don't like Valiant books in general because I don't like the Valiant universe, but this is completely separate from it. So if right. you're looking at it and thinking, I don't want to read a Valiant book because their superheroes are lame and I don't want to get into a whole new world of superheroes and try and figure that out, this has nothing to do with any of that. This is completely separate. It's also, it's Peter Milligan, who's got a long history of writing fucked up shit that's really awesome. He's an old Vertigo writer from back this in the day. It absolutely feels like a Vertigo book. Yeah, it is a good Vertigo book. I was worried throughout the thing that Archer was going to show up, Archer and Armstrong, but that did not happen. One of them is immortal, so I'm like, well, this will be the perfect thing, but I was pleasantly surprised that this is just published by Vertigo, or damn it, published by Valiant. And I don't hate the Valiant universe like you do. I'm still glad to see that they can do something that's not just all tied around that. It was really good. I liked so it a lot. So the art, the drawings are actually pretty good. The one objection I have to them, it looks very posed. It doesn't look fluid when they are moving or talking. It's well drawn, but they can't capture motion very well. That is true. It's a lot and of And the stills. faces look a little mannequin-y. That is still true. still very beautiful and well drawn. It's technically well done, it just doesn't have the life to it. Which just kind of feeds back to your whole John Davis Hunt versus Walter Giovanni. John Davis Hunt is good, like the whole package thing. They're both 
very good artists, but one of them does kind of, there's something a little extra in this. And this is a lot like, a lot of people give Alex Ross crap for being gorgeous, gorgeous artist, but he does stills. He's like, he took a photograph and it doesn't look like anybody's moving. It's like they're posing for the picture. I can see what you're saying here. It's really good art. It's very British comic looking to me, but it's still, it's just all stills, even with some of the motion lines. It literally looks like just still frames. I will give it three and a half because I really liked it, but it wasn't super awesome. I will give it three and a half of those weird little gladiator plaques that they found in the street. Eternal Flames. Wow, <laughs> that's impressive. And you kids, if you want to learn more about Rome, you can visit your local library. I am going to take us over to a prison break in Rocket Raccoon number five from Marvel Comics. This is written by Matthew Rosenberg. Pencils and inks by Jorge Cuelho. Probably saying that wrong. Colors by <laughs> Antonio Fabella. This was going to be Carissa's book, but she can't be here this week. So no real mystery there that she's the one who chose the Guardian's book. I chose to take this book for her to cover because this is actually a very enjoyable story. It does tie into everything that's been happening on Rocket Raccoon, but I feel like this stands on its own. I probably won't go into as much detail as she would. This is Rocket leading a prison breakout, which is Rocket's bread and butter. That's his jam. It's what he loves to do. Of these captured aliens... And he's modified like a bunch of equipment from the prison to act like a flamethrower. So it's like detachable shower heads and a gas tank of propane that he's using as a flamethrower to bust out of there. And then while he's busting out, Craven the hunter shows up, who's been hunting Rocket this whole time. And he helps Rocket bust out of prison because he doesn't think Rocket should be kept in a prison. That he should be free to roam in the wild and be hunted down and murdered there rather than killed in a cage. Rocket reluctantly accepts his help and the other aliens are like, you know, maybe Craven's not so bad. And he's like, no, Craven's a psychopath. He just spent the entire van ride over here telling me how he was going to murder us all, but while we were out in the open and free, so it would be a fair fight. That was kind of funny. There's two parts that I found absolutely hilarious and awesome in this, is when Rocket is in a fight with them, they keep calling him a hedgehog, and he doesn't know what a hedgehog is. So he thinks it's some kind of fearsome monster. And like, they have him surrounded. And this is uh, such a great little Watchmen reference. So they've got him surrounded. And he's like, you don't realize that the hedgehog isn't locked in here with you. You're locked in here with the hedgehog. <laughs> Goes nuts on them and beats the hell out of them. That part alone made me laugh my ass off and won me over to the book. The other part that I really liked is in addition to Rocket being his irritable, scoundrelly self, you also see that he also has a little heart of gold because they open up this dimensional portal to be able to get off planet and all the aliens start panicking, uh, trying to push their way through the portal to get off of Earth and Rocket stays behind to fight Craven so that the others can escape. And he even offers to trade himself for other people to be able to go. And I really liked that part of Rocket, of him being heroic and sacrificing himself for others even though he's curmudgeon and a little trash panda he still has the heart of a hero which i really like and at the end the inhumans show up to help him he is able to get free and it looks like they have that giant ship for them there seems to be like 16 different ways they resolve them getting off planet not everyone is on the same page about how they do it i thought the series has been kind of hit and miss for me but this issue was pretty darn good you got all the things that make rockets awesome you you had the Cray Van, which is always awesome when it shows up. The Cray Van was awesome. <laughs> it's like the A-Team Van, but without the, like, stripe. And they've got, like, a painting of Craven. <laughs> I'm like, it's right off a Conan keep cover. destroying the Cray Van. Like, every time it shows up, it gets destroyed. And he keeps saying, I make a lot of money. And then Rocket gives him this kind of look like, how? <laughs> which he doesn't answer, but obviously from killing animals and mutants and other things that he hunts down. If you're looking for a little bit of Guardians of the Galaxy before you go see the movie, I would recommend picking this up. Avoid the ultra-shitty Guardians book that came out last week, at least in my opinion. The others seem to have liked it okay. You're much better off picking up Rocket Raccoon number 5 than Dream On. What'd you think of it? I really liked it. I like It's Rocket. The only part that irritates me is that the art is not my cup of tea. It's not bad. It's good for what it is. I'm a fan of realistic art. This seems 
kind of juvenile and all in all it was a good book and what they were going for the artworks it's just not my cup of tea i love all the little side joke pictures that they do like craven has like little hearts on his underwear when <laughs> yeah. he pulls it down for the flashbang bomb i love the the toilet flamethrower the fact that they threw in there's just some shiar living in a fucking brownstone in the middle of manhattan i like those little details that kind of build out the world it's just kind of fun for me it helps make the world bigger instead of just yeah it's just all for some reason all the shit happens in manhattan and it's still in Manhattan, but it's got this little bit of detail in the middle of Manhattan, and I like that. Rocket's always fun to read because it's just utter chaos. And I didn't realize the electronics and stuff stuck in his back are forming a chaos star. I did not know that either. He's got the circle in the middle, and he's got four longer things, and then he's at the corners it's got two pointing out there, and I'm like, well, that's perfect for fucking Rocket. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. I had a good time. I will give this three and a half. You're trapped in here with me. I will give it three and a half flashbang grenades down the pants. <laughs> I do like that, where he's like, I'm the kind of guy who's willing to blow your balls off. Yes. <laughs> so I'll always win. Ah, good stuff. So the next book we have, I'll say it's good stuff just because it's Kirby. <laughs> it's the Commandy <laughs> Challenge number four by DC Comics. The Wild Wondrous West, written by James Tinian IV, and pencils and inks by Carlos Dananda and Gabe Altabe. Commandy Challenge is an ongoing miniseries about kind of a showcase of different creative teams. It's kind of like a campfire game where... Each person then takes the story and they say a little bit more to the story and they kind of have to pick up with wherever the hell you left them off. Though I don't know if there's some sort of editorial control. Being that it's DC and they came out with a new 52, I'm pretty sure there's no editorial control the at all. The idea is whichever team does the best on their issue of the Commandy Challenge is going to end up writing the Commandy series. But Oh god, there's going to be a Commandy series? they say. This is like an improv class for Flash Gordon stories. Okay. <laughs> if Flash Gordon stories were like the worst possible future ever. I've read two of these Commandy books, the last one and then this one, and it just seems like there's nothing positive about the future, and yes, animals really do fucking hate you, and they want to kill everything else. That's the lesson I'm getting here. Yes. <laughs> everything wants to kill everything else. Your plant girlfriend will stick by you, though. This story is kind of kicks off where the last one left off with the giant cat god about to eat Commandy and his plant girlfriend. I can't believe I just said those words. <laughs> Commandy Challenge is full of crazy things you thought you would never see, hear, or say. Seriously, I think they went away to like a retreat and just got completely just blitzed off their minds. Oh, yes. And like, dude, let's write this. <laughs> I think someone had to have a tape recorder going while there was a bunch of acid going on. Commandy sticks the giant cat god and discovers, oh, hey, there's oil seeking out of this thing. Because all robots are just big bags of oil. Runs and jumps into the mouth and he finds that inside it's actually a giant mecha. Where an intelligent one of those cat people and his, his Igor, who's called Arlash, are inside doing this kind of experiment. Trying to get the sacrifices in to kind of keep the cat people in line. Kamandi and Vila, his plant girlfriend, have fallen into there, and he isn't going to have any of this. He's like, yeah, this is fucking crazy. <laughs> so he whips out his gun, because they're about to cut him up and figure out what makes Kamandi tick. He whips out his gun, and he shoots the control screen for the, the robot, because as we know from every cartoon ever, <laughs> destroy the monitor, it just destroys the machine. <laughs> That's just science, Matt. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Kamandi climbs out of the giant evil space god thing and jumps into the robot bling, the jet bling that's around its neck. <laughs> and he throws Sila into the back of the jet. And as he's about to be picked up and re-eaten, but probably chewed, he fires off the jet and it flies off and snaps the rope that was holding it on, which rips the head off of the giant robot. The cat people discover, oh wait, I know that asshole. Fed him a long time ago. So they're flying off. He's all worried that Vila's going to die because they're up in the sky and the air is low and Vila's dying. And so he puts the mask on and then blacks out and the jet crashes in the middle of the desert. And he runs back, finds her. She's kind of dried up and she seems to be dead. But the good news is she's a fucking plant. And as we know from Groot, as long as some small bit of her survives, she'll grow back. But they find a wall just in the middle of the desert and then... Uh, giant kangaroo robots basically show up. <laughs> when we said this was crazy, it gets weird. It gets fucking weird. And I'm like, is Tank Girl going to show up now? Wouldn't surprise me. In this palace with all these Matrix-style armory, Vila's fine again. She seems to be taller. And they wake up to, oh, look, more fucking crazy animals trying to kill you. Talking crazy animals. 
Let me get that Crazy straight. Crazy kangaroo outback. It's like a furry nightmare. Now they're in the outback because they somehow got from Manhattan to wherever the hell the cat people were, I guess, South America to fucking Australia. Just like that. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't think you guys get distance. Or maybe, I don't know, the world kind of smushed together and it's a lot smaller. Maybe more like a Pangea. And yeah, I'll remind everybody, this is the future of the DC universe. This is where OMAC goes to. Like, the OMAC future that happens ends up with this shit. The person who becomes OMAC in the original series, he's like the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Commandi. Commandi's name comes from Command D, which is the yes. base that he was actually at. I don't know if they unveiled that yep, here. they did. Okay. Well, no, he's trying to find Command D. That's what he was told to go out into the world and find. And when he uh, woke up, he was all out of it, and that was, he just kept repeating that to himself, and they thought that was his name. In the original comic, he wakes up in Command D. We're looking at in the next issue, and I'm kind of a little excited for it, is some Mad Max crazy shit going through the desert with crazy killer kangaroos yes. on unicycles. Well, it's like a big wheel that has guns attached to it. It's like a steampunk So dream. it's like Mad Max with anthropomorphic kangaroos in a pod race. Gonna be fucking badass. Crazy town. But it's, it in my crazy. opinion, I think I love it more than the rest of the nerds do. I love the wild roller coaster that I'm on that has one wheel that's kind of flapping on the track and about ready to fall off, which just makes the ride more exciting. I love this thing. It's terrifyingly interesting, as I'll, I will give you that. It is so interesting. <laughs> it's not a boring book. It's just really hard to keep up. I have up. no idea what's going to happen next, and that is awesome. Like, I would have never predicted that from the King Kong jungle sacrifice that they were in, they were going to end up in a Mad Max kangaroo world. I would not have connected those two dots. Because each writer tries to fuck over the next team, so they put them in the weirdest situation they can and they have to work their way out of it and then work the next person into an even deeper hole it's so a crazy experiment weird. i feel like it kind of captures some of that spirit of kirby's exuberance and fantastic imagination yeah i don't think he ever got this far out there not very many space robots it feels to me very much like a 1930s pulp serial i agree with you there it's just like the worst world you could end up with though <laughs> Life is always horrible with this. It's like, what could go wrong? I'm like, shut up. Don't say up. that. <laughs> yeah. Why did you say those words? Bill Willingham is writing the next issue, and it looks like there are cat people riding on giant birds that they're going to be dealing with. So, And I, I think we're finally going to get to see his tiger friend, because in the, the next issue, little preview, you've got a tiger who looks like he's leading him through the he's jungle. He's got a sweet Indiana Jones outfit on, yeah. It'll be crazy, whatever it is. But it'll be crazy These fun. are really hard to summarize the plot with. Commandy gets into some shit, and then he gets out of some shit, and then he's in some more yes. shit. <laughs> You've just described all 12 books in the series. I'll give it a four and a quarter. I don't know what the fuck is going on I here. I will give it three and a half kangaroo outback Mad Max races. <laughs> the best kind. So I am taking us over to Marvel for another X-Men book for X-Men Blue number two from Marvel Comics. It's written by Colin Bunn, pencils and inks by Jorge Molina, and colors by Matt Milla. X-Men Blue is the time-displaced original X-Men that are in our reality, trapped here in time, and they've kind of broken off from the regular X-Men to go off and do their own thing. And the big reveal at the end of last issue was you find out they're working for Magneto. And you're kind of left at a cliffhanger on that issue because you don't really know what Magneto is using them for or what role he's playing in here. And this book opens up, and it's at first I was very confused because they're fighting Magneto. Last time right. you saw him, they were taking orders from him. Find out, as they're battling him and they're losing, that this is actually a Danger Room simulation that they're running. Nobody tell our Which boss. Magneto proves to be the cool stepdad, and he's like, I don't need to know what you guys are doing. I'm not the headmaster of the school. You guys are grown up. You kind of get an answer to what happened. So originally when they confronted Magneto, he told them he wasn't there to fight and he took off his helmet that blocks the telepathic stuff and let Jean Grey into his mind. And she went exploring around this M.C. Escher old mansion that's Magneto's mind. And she felt like there were places he was allowing her to go 
to and places that he was trying to hide from her as well. So she wasn't really trusting him all that much. Like everything she could see looked okay. Like it didn't look like he was evil necessarily anymore. And then she found a room that was kind of like hidden off to the side. And that's where she goes in and she sees him in the camps. And that's where it kind of ends with her vision. And she's like, okay, we'll work with you. Where she sees that he does want to bring peace to the world and that he now believes that the only way to do that is by working with humanity. She's working with him, but she's also having the X-Men train for the day when they're going to have to fight Magneto because there are parts of him that she wasn't allowed to see, so she doesn't trust him completely. That's kind of interesting that it's a very uneasy alliance. And at first you think maybe Magneto is being cool to them because he's letting them do stuff in the danger room without monitoring them. But then you find out that he's actually building this machine to send them to the past, which he hasn't told them about. But is that a positive thing or a negative thing in his point? Maybe he thinks he's doing a good thing. I think maybe he thinks if he sends them back to the past, maybe they can talk to Charles. Yeah, maybe not kill Charles. And tell him what's going to happen. But he doesn't understand that they're not actually the X-Men from this past. They're not the 616's X-Men. They're the X-Men from another dimension's past who maybe would have turned out the same as the 616. But the second they took them out of history, the universe that they came out of was a different dimension. They're not from 616's history. They're just up until the point where they got pulled, it was the same Hmm, universe. I see. I thought they were from the 616. They technically are. But the second they got pulled, they are no longer from the history of this universe. Because the X-Men of this universe never got pulled. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. God, I hate Doctor fucking Who. (laughs) Or as I call it, Doctor Who gives a fuck. I give a fuck. Another thing that is kind of interesting here is the X-Men have been sent by Magneto on a mission because there are sentinels in Madrid that he wants them to go deal with. And some of the X-Men are saying that if Magneto wanted to kill us, sending us to go fight a Sentinel would be the perfect way to do it. And they point out that if Magneto wanted to kill us, he just kill we've us. proven time and time again in our Danger Room simulations that we could not stop him if he wanted to kill us. So that seems a very convoluted way to kill us. And then they're like, well, what if this is part of an evil plan? Dude, if we were with Professor X, we would still be going to fight Sentinels in Madrid. So... We're going to do this. And then the interesting part is they get there, and there are like a bunch of Sentinels there, not just one. Power Ranger Sentinels. Yes, and they say to them, hello, fellow mutants, which has them all go, what? What? So that's kind of the cliffhanger there, that these Sentinels are saying that they're mutants as well. So who is Bobby's boyfriend? So I don't know if the younger Bobby is also realized he's gay. Because he was on the phone during the issue, and he was like, just call me back. Yeah, it's very sad little messages, like when the person is just kind of ghosting away from you, and they won't answer your calls or your texts, or... I'll just give you teenagers a little bit of advice. If you've left someone six voicemails, and they haven't called you back, don't leave them a seventh. You, you've got they're your They're just answer. not that into you. Yeah, they're just <laughs> not that into you. Just accept it and move on, Bobby. There's plenty of other dudes in the sea for you. Yep. You're too cool for that, man. See what I did there? I like this one because you get kind of the optimism of the younger X-Men, but you also get their wariness because they know how fucked up the X-Men in this world have become. So they see that path before them. They're terrified that they're going to make the same mistakes. And then you also have them starting to do things different. Like the Beast is starting to study magic like it's just another, you know, math or science science problem, which is, I think, interesting. I like X-Men Blue better than I like X-Men I Gold. I like them both, and they both came out this week. For X-Men Gold, they have four issues that Adrian Saeed did. Originally, we're going to do them every two weeks like they would for any other book. Now with Marvel, and now they're cranking them out one a week. I think they want to just burn that shit as fast as we can. Seriously. I paid for it, so I'm going to publish it, but fuck that guy. I'm sure they're bringing in professors of Indonesian studies and Islamic studies. And Could you look at this artwork? This feels better to me than the other one. I like this art better. I think he draws teenagers actually looking like teenagers. Look like they're 16, 17 year olds. I'm glad we're getting X-Men that are actually enjoyable to read. It's been such a dry well for so long. And every X-Men book so far has been really good. Right, the resurrection. I think I will give X-Men Blue three and three quarters. Hello, fellow mutants. I will give it three and three quarters to me, my X-Men. Feels good to say that, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. (laughs) (laughs) So those were the books we read this week. To check out our other podcasts, Cut the Cord, as well as other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On on SoundCloud. And on Podcast Be sure to rate, 
review. And subscribe. Be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds.